Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Control, here are the facts. Hey there, I'm Bobby Roberts. I used to do a Star Wars show called Full of Sith. And welcome to Rumor Control, a show that used to be all about spoilers, behind-the-scenes brouhaha, and all manner of sewing circle gossip-mongering here in the verdant rainforest of discontent that is Star Wars fandom. A home for know-it-alls, know-nothings, the daywalkers who move between both worlds, and people with generally no self-control whatsoever. However, this is a pretty special edition of Rumor Control, and not only because I'm actually doing one, but because there aren't really any actual spoilers in it. Instead, this is maybe the one episode of Rumor Control that is absolutely about controlling a rumor. A single rumor. A rumor about a Star Wars story that has itself become a Star Wars story. So, for the benefit of you listeners who have been hearing things about Rogue One, have been seeing things on your Facebooks and your Twitters, what we're going to do is walk through the life cycle of a rumor from its dramatic, squalling birth to its awkward, ungainly adolescence to the part in which actual grown-ups step in and steer things in the right direction. Now, shall we begin? May 30th. Page 6, better known as the gossip section of the world-famous tabloid The New York Post. Not The New York Times. Not The New York Daily News. The New York Post. Runs a breathless story, headlined, Disney execs in panic over upcoming Star Wars film, stating that Rogue One is, quote, in crisis. This is a crisis. And that the film will have to go into four weeks of expensive reshoots over the summer because Disney bosses were upset with what director Gareth Edwards had turned in and are, quote, refusing to sit in the back seat after the film didn't test very well. Fans received this news with a small measure of concern. May 31st. Deadline, an online industry trade magazine, confirms that reshoots are planned for the summer, but had been planned long ago, and that the film was not actually test screened at all. To clarify, showing a rough cut of a film to your co-workers and bosses is not a test screening. Test screenings are when you take a mostly finished version of a film out to a general audience and ask them what they thought after they see it. Deadline suggests that the reshoots will add extra edge to the film and also might allow for a cameo from Alden Ehrenreich as young Han Solo. Later that day, Boris Kitt at The Hollywood Reporter, which is a long-running industry trade magazine, also confirms that reshoots are happening in summer 
had been scheduled long ago, and that the film was not only not test screened, but will not be test screened at all. And while this report makes sure to mention that both Lucasfilm and Disney executives are happy with the general shape of the film and are simply looking to improve it through added moments of humor and levity, the report is framed as, quote, Disney orders reshoots. And once again, mentions that young Han Solo rumor while adding that the film supposedly ends within the same day as Star Wars begins. Even later that day, Drew McQueenie at HitFix also confirms the reshoots, shoots down the test screenings aspect, and also casts doubt on the young Han Solo rumor, which makes sense, being as the timeline provided by The Hollywood Reporter wouldn't allow for young Han Solo to show up at all. It would just be... Han Solo. He also backs up the idea that the notes given to him by both Disney and Lucasfilm executives were welcomed by Edwards, and that everyone involved is overall pleased with the way the film was shaping up. And with that, the fandom's tears receded like low tide, and everyone took the next day off to eat ice cream, knit, do whatever it is Star Wars fans are doing when they're not obsessively worrying over the sanctity of their fictional universe. June 2nd. Making Star Wars, a fan site known for accurately and heavily spoiling large swaths of both The Force Awakens and Rogue One, weighs in with further details regarding the reshoots taken from conversations with crew members on the production. Apparently, at least one crew member had heard that J.J. Abrams was maybe going to supervise the reshoots, but instead it was decided Gareth Edwards would be doing them himself, with help from Christopher McQuarrie, who had previously helped out on a draft of the Rogue One screenplay after both Chris Weitz and Gary Whitta had turned in their work. McQuarrie was said to be working, quote, extensively with Edwards because his draft of the movie was, quote, superior to the film they shot previously. Now, this wording makes it sound like he did a complete draft that only came in after principal photography was already done, which is usually not how that sort of thing works. But again, They're basically requoting what some crew member told him, so hey. Further, 32 sets had already been recreated for the reshoot. The reshoot would take eight weeks at six days a week, and the footage would comprise roughly 40% of the finished film. However, making Star Wars editor-in-chief Jason Ward wrote that the vibe, quote, doesn't seem bad, especially after the budget had been added to, specifically for the reshoots, after having been slashed just before shooting began. Okay. He reiterates, though, that things seem to be generally positive, although he did express some concern about the prospect of execs meddling with the story. Later that day... Slash Film, an enthusiast press entertainment site, essentially writes up a blog post quoting parts of the Making Star Wars story and applying their own editorial spin on it. No new information was actually added to the story. But later that night... Director and screenwriter Christopher McQuarrie, whose credits include films such as The Usual Suspects, The Way of the Gun, Edge of Tomorrow, and the two most recent Mission Impossible films, tweets about film blogs running, quote, some horse and that they need to come and talk to him. June 3rd! Slash Film updates their story after getting in contact with Mr. McQuarrie, as per request, who gave them this statement, quote, If there are any reshoots on Rogue One, I'm not supervising them. For any outlet to say so is not only wrong, it's irresponsible. 
Gareth Edwards is a talented filmmaker who deserves the benefit of the doubt. Making a film, let alone a Star Wars chapter, is hard enough without the internet trying to deliberately downgrade one's years of hard work. Who does that even serve? Let him make his movie in peace. Later that day... Anthony Bresnikan of Entertainment Weekly, a film writer and author who also hosted a panel with Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams at the last Star Wars celebration, posts an article after getting in contact with his own sources at Lucasfilm. And according to those unnamed sources, the reshoots will take four to five weeks and were scheduled before principal photography was even started and were bumped from spring to summer in order to accommodate cast schedules and also to apply the fixes to the film's structure and tone as highlighted in rough cut screenings with Lucasfilm and Disney executives and also screenwriter and director Tony Gilroy, who helped Gareth Edwards in a similar fashion on Godzilla. There is nothing about the budget being slashed before shooting and the rumors about the reshoots taking eight weeks weeks at six days a week comprising 40 percent of the film are both groaned and laughed at bresnikin also specified that the only two disney executives to actually have seen anything of rogue one were alan horn and bob Iger, whose involvements seemed to be limited to offering some suggestions and then approving the request and funds to shift the reshoot scheduling around to give lucasfilm a little extra room But even with that room, the film is still on schedule to be picture locked a full month before The Force Awakens was in its own schedule. So, how you guys doing? You still with me? We have managed to cover just about a week's worth of one rumor from birth to adulthood in less than 10 minutes, starting at and ending up at... But how did we cover so much ground so quickly? And why did so much of our path go screaming straight through terrain that strongly resembles the bog of eternal stench? Because narrative. That's why. Narrative number one. I've talked about this before on Full of Sith. But there's a narrative that consistently assumes Disney is in control of all things Star Wars. In fact, it seems that for a lot of fans, Lucasfilm doesn't even exist as a company. They're simply one of the gloves that Mickey greedily slides his hands into whenever he wants something done. (laughs) This seems pretty unfair to Kathleen Kennedy and the team of creatives and executives she's put together at Lucasfilm to just sort of automatically suggest that any success that Star Wars has is due to Disney ordering it and or executing it. And yet, that happens nonstop. You probably do it all the time. You don't do it when Marvel hits a home run or when Pixar makes you cry for the three millionth time, but you do automatically do it whenever you read a story about Star Wars. Now, it's not entirely your fault because so do almost all of the people writing the stories that you're reading. Now, maybe it's because you're so used to thinking of Star Wars as a thing 100% controlled by cultural monolith George Lucas that when Lucas sold his company to a cultural monolith named Disney... You just sort of quickly swapped out the one two-syllable word for filmmaker for the other two-syllable word for filmmaker, despite the fact that one was a person and the other is a multi-headed hydra of media conglomerates, and neither are actually getting in the way of Lucasfilm creatives and executives responsible for the books, TV shows, games, and movies that have come out since uh, 2013. Or maybe you just honestly think nobody at Lucasfilm has any freedom to do anything. Now, whatever the... Wrong. Wrong! 
wrong reason for completely subtracting Lucasfilm from the equation. Once you automatically, thoughtlessly accept the idea that anything with the words Star and Wars on it only happens because the unnamed, vaguely mouse-eared silhouettes in the dark hiding behind the Disney brand name are forcing everyone's hands, it's that much easier to make the leap towards another easily swallowed narrative, one that Jason Ward touched on in his Making Star Wars report. Narrative number two. Executives can only ruin stories and will damage the purity of your art if given the chance. Now, this isn't necessarily untrue. Hollywood is littered with tons of examples of frustrated creatives wearing fancy suits, exercising their will at the expense of a director or a writer's vision. Well, that's basically the Weinstein's entire life story, and the industry just keeps giving them Oscars for it. So it's not like it doesn't happen, but it's also not axiomatic. It's not a given. There are just as many examples of executives and directors working together in order to best achieve the filmmaker's vision to help them do what needs to be done so that everyone gets the movie that the executives greenlit as opposed to some hobbled, broken approximation of it in front of your eyes laying there. Here's a particularly pertinent example. If Alan Ladd hadn't given George Lucas the space he needed to get Star Wars in the shape that he got it just before May 25th, 1977, we wouldn't be talking right now. Ladd didn't wear Lucas as a glove, point at the edit bay, and smear George's bearded face as index finger all over the negatives, forcing the film to fit his vision. Lucas came to him and worked with him to get the movie where it needed to be, which included reshoots. Which brings us to narrative number three. Reshoots are a sign that your movie is doomed. 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 Now again, this narrative isn't necessarily untrue. It's gained a lot of steam recently, thanks to the enthusiast press occupying a prominence in media heretofore unseen, and more than a few high-profile films having very problematic shoots that necessitated last-second Hail Marys to make them somewhat palatable. World War Z, for example, or Fantastic Four. But those films had their reshoots publicized because of the -the behind-the-scenes drama shining a light on them, and not the other way around. But we as a somewhat uninformed audience, have gotten it backwards like a hypochondriac with a head cold hitting up WebMD and texting your mom about the brain cancer that you think you got. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. See, just because behind-the-scenes drama can cause reshoots doesn't mean that news of a reshoot is proof there's behind-the-scenes drama. There are hundreds of films every year, most of which you haven't seen and some of which you haven't even heard of that went through reshoots on their way to being finished. And those reshoots weren't due to mysterious, faceless executives stepping in and forcing the director to bow down or the parent company hiring a journeyman to take over because the director flamed out. A lot of those reshoots happened because the director asked for them because they wanted them, because they saw that first cut and knew what they had to change, what they had to get rid of, what they had to add to make the movie work, and because the studio heard those requests and agreed with the director, they gave them that room. Because not every studio and director relationship is acrimonious and adversarial, but a lot of us default to that mindset when we process this news, and it's easier to do that when we think of a studio as a mouse-eared Gestapo. (laughs) and the creator as a constantly put-upon artist who must protect every last hair on their precious baby's precious head. Which leads us to... Narrative number four. Movies are always better in their original version when only the director can touch it. Now, 
the original version we're discussing in this instance is not any sort of original version you'd actually enjoy seeing because almost nobody enjoys seeing it, the director especially. That's because this original version is a rough cut or an assembly cut where the footage from principal photography is put together in an overlong, unfinished form solely to get a sense of how the story survived the transition from page to screen, and they're almost always really, really hard to watch. Directors are very frequently demoralized after having watched that first cut because the movie looks like a really, really long and ungainly turd. People tend to automatically jump to the conclusion that films are in their purest form when screened for the first time in-house, and it makes zero sense to actually think that way. Much like most of the people writing about this rumor at these publications would be ashamed of themselves, would recoil in horror at the possibility that they didn't get a chance to rewrite and rewrite their story about this movie that's not getting a chance to reshoot and re-edit without first running it past some higher-ups. Or like, say, me recording this podcast and then like just getting a phone call in the middle of it and not stopping and editing out the... Con- Hold on. Hold on for a sec. Yeah? Yeah, I'm here. Yes, I'll scoop... I'll scoop it. Yes. it's They're very stinky, I know. Yes, they're very cute. I'm glad we have them. I'm not sick. I'm glad we have them. They're just stinky, and I don't like scooping. Yes, I'm doing the Star Wars thing. Yes, I love you too. Okay. Anyway, it'd be like me just leaving a phone call in the middle of a podcast instead of going back and editing out and then you know pulling a whole bunch of irrelevant stuff from the center of my show. I, I wouldn't do that. That would be the point at which a filmmaker probably starts going, I might need to cut some stuff out and reshoot some stuff. Much like any writer would say, I probably need to rewrite some stuff. Or like any musician would say, I probably need to punch in some stuff. Or like any podcaster would say, I should... No, actually, most podcasters just hit record and then hit stop and then just upload it. That's kind of not going to serve my point, so let's just pretend I didn't say that. Anyway... A lot of reshoots happen because the director wants them, not because the studio is forcing it on anyone. And nobody seems to be entertaining that possibility. They assume, instead, that a director is supremely happy with everything that turns out the first time they look at it, and that any further changes past that point are mercenary attacks on the sanctity of their story. That a film's journey from script to screen is somehow fraudulent unless it sails through photography and post-production without anyone else but the director weighing in on it? Not the editor, not the screenwriter, not the producers, not the studio, as if the concept of revisions itself is some sort of poison to pure creativity, suggesting that the only real version of a movie is its first draft? That's weird. That's wrong. That's a funhouse mirror reflection of filmmaking reality. So, if you have a story that touches on all four of those narratives in a manner not unlike your fillings touching on tinfoil while your fingernails touch on a chalkboard, you are guaranteed to get a response. Because reacting is faster than thinking. And all four of these narratives are in place because they make not thinking a lot easier. You can just accept and react. Accept and react. Now, you combine that with the frankly depressing fact that the internet is a communication medium dependent largely on text, used by hundreds of millions of people who obviously hate reading, much less paying attention to what they're reading, much less paying attention to the reliability of the people they're only half concentrating on before hitting retweet and share posts, and you understand 
why a page six story went motorboating through the bog of eternal stench on the strength of its spin before winding up unspun at Entertainment Weekly with a bunch of inaccurate details thrown to the side like Cadillac hubcaps. That all said, this isn't some sort of comforting guarantee that Rogue One is going to end up good. Like, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Sometimes a creator sculpts their story aiming for Rodan and ending up with that weird beef log thing you see at the Yero joint down the street. Like, they didn't mean to wind up there. It just sort of got away from them somehow. This episode doesn't exist as a means to convince you that the situation is all Bob Marley. This episode is to make you aware of the faulty narratives that you might be operating with and why it matters who you pay attention to when you're reading about stuff you probably aren't too familiar with. Now, I'm not trying to suggest reshoots or evidence of a great movie on the way. It could turn out Gareth Edwards ended up making a pretty, beautifully shot and paced film stacked with wasted actors who just sort of stand in front of each other and mouth empty words in someone's general direction. Not even reshoots could fix that. I'm just trying to let you know that they're doing reshoots isn't any more alarming than they're using digital cameras or they have a green screen or they're looping dialogue or they hired an editor or the soundtrack has sound effects on it. It's just part of how someone starts with an idea for a movie and ends with you putting that movie on your Blu-ray shelf. So to recap, reshoots aren't automatically bad. Page six is automatically bad. Films are not born into this world perfect and beautiful upon their rough cut. Christopher McQuarrie has no time for your horse There is no way you can shoot six days a week for eight weeks starting in the middle of June, comprising 40% of a film's total runtime and still make a December 16th release date. That's f***ing ridiculous. Pay attention to what you're reading and where you're reading it. Pay attention to what you're reading and where you're reading it. Pay attention to what you're reading and where you're reading it. And stop bugging Pablo with your dumbass canon questions. Ask him about Transformers instead. Trust me, you will make a friend on the internet that way. I'm Bobby Roberts. That was Rumor Control. Those are the facts.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.